0: All right, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30. While you're turning there, I realize it has been a while since I've given you guys an update on our twins. Luke and Grace are 15 months old now, so we have exited the baby cave. We are no longer just trying to keep our kids alive. They are now full-fledged toddlers, which is a lot more fun than babyhood. (laughs) Toddlers are starting to show their individual personalities, so I thought I'd show you a couple pictures. Um, Luke, my, my little boy, he's all boy. Um, On the left, he's in a sweater and cords, and that lasted for like a few minutes because he just wants to be naked and covered in dirt. And so uh, he loves making a mess. He loves playing outside. We bought him that sandbox just to try to limit the scope of his destruction. Uh, He is all boy. Uh, In contrast, Gracie, our little girl is all girl. um, I don't really understand where this came from. Uh, apparently, she was born with a love of hats, which neither her mother or I share. I mean, literally, she's claimed every hat in the house. We had to put a box by the back door and fill them with hats. And she wakes up in the morning, she walks over the box, just starts hat after hat after hat, including my new baseball cap. I've lost it. It's, it's no longer mine because my little girl has claimed it will come out in the morning and, and she will often have three or four hats just stacked on her head because she can't get enough hats. Um... Really fun. I mean, every day is a new cause for laughter with my kids. Really, really fun. But for all of you parents out there, as you well know if you have had toddlers in the past, toddlerhood is not all fun and games. <laughs> this phase we're in of the toddler years, it's, it's pretty challenging. Because this is when discipline begins. This is when my responsibility as a father really kicks into gear. It's my responsibility to, to train my children in right and wrong. To train them to turn from sin and walk with the Lord in obedience. And i got to admit to you, even as a pastor, that responsibility, training, disciplining my children, frankly, it terrifies me. It overwhelms me. Um, I was an engineer. I, I was good in school, and yet engineering is nothing compared to disciplining your children. There is no textbook to turn to. There's no equation to follow. It's hard, and none of us know what we're doing. It's really scary, this whole discipline your children thing. But I have great comfort in the midst of my fear. I know that Julie and I are not alone in the training of our children. See, Luke and Gracie actually have two fathers. Men of the two, I'm actually the less important. My training and discipline will last for, what, maybe two decades for Luke and Gracie? Uh, Their greater father, their heavenly father, he will be training and disciplining them for their entire lives. They will outgrow my parenting. They will never outgrow his parenting. God is always at work in the lives of his children, turning us from sin and moving us towards maturity. He's always at work in us. He is always responding to our sin to turn us away from it and lead us towards righteousness. And in our passage this morning, we're going to find out how. Isaiah chapter 30, it's going to reveal to us how God trains us, how God disciplines us, how God responds to our sin. And in Isaiah 30, we're going to see a a three-step process that God walks us through when we sin. And those three steps, they grow in severity as they progress. In other words, it is much better for us to learn our lesson from the Lord during step number one and turn from our sin than to persist in sin all the way to step number three. Step number three, much more painful than step number one. So this morning, we're going to walk through this process, and I promise you it's going to be much better for you in life if you will learn to recognize God's first step, if you will learn to be sensitive to it and turn from your sin during step number one. So let's jump right in. When we sin, when God's people sin, he begins his response with conviction. That's step number one. God convicts us. Look at chapter 30. The chapter begins with conviction. Look with me at verses one and two. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of. Now let me fill in some background for you guys. If you were here two weeks ago, we were in Isaiah chapter 7. We were learning about events that occurred around 701 BC while Ahaz was king of the nation of Judah. It was a time of crisis because the, the northern border states, Israel and Syria, had allied together to wipe out Judah. And they had marched in, they had a much stronger army, they were wiping out Judah, it was really bad, Ahaz was really scared, so what's he going to do? Well, you know the story, he didn't turn to God, he did not look to God to help him, instead he looked to the north, to the enemy of Israel in, in Syria, the kingdom of Assyria, and using political savvy, he entered into an alliance with this idolatrous kingdom, he sold out his alliance to God to align himself with Assyria. Okay, now fast forward, 34 years 735 BC and what we're studying in the passage this morning. Times have changed dramatically. Assyria moved forth and wiped out the enemies of Judah. Actually, Syria and Israel no longer existed at this point. Wiped off the face of the earth. Now Ahaz is no longer king. Now it's his son Hezekiah. And Hezekiah faces a new crisis because when Assyria wiped out Syria and Israel, they decided, hey, we don't really want to stop here. Really rather keep going. And so they marched into Judah. And by this time, by chapter 30, they'd wiped out most of the countryside. They'd wiped out most of the fortresses of Judah. They decimated their army. And now Hezekiah sits bottled up in Jerusalem. And it appears he has no hope. He is terrified. He's in crisis. What's he going to do? Is he going to turn to the Lord? Well, no. Just like Ahaz, he follows Ahaz's example and forms an alliance with another pagan nation, the only nation left standing, the nation of Egypt to the south. That's what's going on in verses 1 and 2. Hezekiah has turned from the Lord and turned to Egypt for help. And God's not pleased with that. So he responds to Hezekiah's sin with conviction. And that's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. To convict someone means that you show someone that they are in the wrong. That's what God does. He is identifying Judah's sins. He's calling out. He's naming what they've done wrong. And and what I want you to notice here is how specific it is. Look at verse 1. He starts right out with conviction. Woe to the rebellious children. You are rebelling. And now what does your rebellion look like? You execute a plan but not mine. You're putting together this brilliant political strategy without consulting me. It's not what I want you to do. In addition, you're making an alliance, but not of my spirit. You're not aligning yourself with me. You're not trusting me and resting in me. You're turning to other nations, specifically to the nation of Egypt. God is very specific in his conviction. I think this is really significant. When when God convicts us, he never does it in a general or generic way. God's not interested in just making you feel guilty in life. That's not God's thing. If you feel guilty and you've turned to God and prayed, God, show me what I've done wrong, and you're not getting an answer, you just feel guilty all the time, guess what? That guilt's not from God. Because God doesn't want to make you guilty. God wants to show you what your sin is. Our God is a God of clarity. He's a God of revelation. He's a God who will not leave you in the dark. He opens your eyes to understand exactly what you've done wrong. That's how his conviction works. He's specific. He wants you to understand what you've done wrong. So really, if you just feel guilty all the time, you need to turn to the Lord and pray, God, show me what I've done wrong. And if I haven't done something wrong, please remove this guilt because I know it's not from you. Because that's not how you operate. God is a God of clarity. In conviction, he shows us what we've done wrong. And here's how he does it. Three ways that God convicts us. Number one, he does it through his word. His word reveals our sin. And actually, that's exactly what his word did for the nation of Judah. Actually, God had already revealed some instructions that that spoke to their situation exactly. Back in Deuteronomy, hundreds of years earlier... Deuteronomy 17, God had said to the nation of Israel, moreover, he, Israel's king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Now, in the ancient world, horses were kind of the glamour weapon of the army. They were like an M1 Abrams tank. They're what everybody wants to have. It's kind of a status symbol. You want horses. They make your army feel good about themselves. And God is saying, hey, when enemies come and attack you, you're going to be tempted to turn to other nations, especially Egypt, to go get some weapons. Don't do it. Don't go to Egypt for help. Don't go to Egypt for any reason. You were slaves down there for 400 years. Never go back. So God's word is convicting to Hezekiah. It told him that he should not go to Egypt. God's word identifies our sin. It does it for us as well. From cover to cover, God's word identifies for us what is right and what is wrong. He lays it out in crystal clarity. Again, God is a God of revelation. He doesn't want to leave you in the dark. He reveals exactly what he expects of you in his word. That's God's first instrument of conviction, his word. Second instrument of conviction is his Holy Spirit. His spirit convicts us of sin. Now, back in Hezekiah's day, God's spirit convicted people of sin. Through a prophet. That's how God worked back then. He filled a specific man, in this case, Isaiah, and he spoke through that man to a whole nation of people. God does it differently today. He doesn't do it through prophets. He does it directly through his spirit living in us. We believers, we have God's spirit living in us, and he speaks directly to us. He speaks to our hearts. He reveals the truth of God's conviction directly to us. We don't need prophets anymore. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. God wants us to know truth. He wants us to know his mind. He wants us to know what's right and wrong. So when we sin through his spirit, God speaks to us. He convicts us. Okay, now God's word, God's spirit. Those are his first two tools of conviction, but a common question that's asked, what about the aborigine? The guy who doesn't have a copy of scripture, the guy who's not a believer, so he doesn't have God's spirit. He's never even heard the name of Jesus. Does God convict that man of sin? Well, yes, he does. Through the third tool of conviction, the conscience. Our conscience is a gift God has given us. It's an innate sense of right and wrong. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. God speaks to us directly through our conscience. Even for unbelievers, God helps them to understand right and wrong through their conscience. It's God's law written on their hearts leading them to understand what is right and what is wrong. That's why no man will have an excuse when he stands before God. He, even the aborigine never saw the word, never heard of Jesus when he stands before God. Did he know what was sin and what was not? Yes, he did. And he chose to sin because God has given all of us the gift of conscience. God is a God of clarity. He wants us to know exactly when we've blown it, exactly when we've sinned. He wants to be clear with us. And so he reveals conviction through his word, his spirit and His in our conscience The problem is we can grow deaf to all of these. We can grow deaf to God's word of conviction. The book of Hebrews talks about that. Hebrews 3.13. Here's the warning. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called a day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a deceitful thing. It is an incredibly destructive thing. When you give into sin over and over again, it begins to harden your heart. It's it's literally it's like the, it's like the process of growing calluses. When I was in junior high and high school, I played guitar a lot. And and at first, it hurt like crazy. Um, My fingers would turn red, and and occasionally they would bleed. It just hurt playing guitar. But after a while, I built up calluses, a a whole mass of dead skin there on the tips of your finger that allow you to play for a long time. It's pretty cool. Uh, But I noticed after a while, my calluses got real thick, that um, I became insensitive to things. Now, like a a pin pricking my finger, I didn't, didn't feel it. Hot cup of coffee... Cold drink, I couldn't really tell how hot it was because of all this dead skin. I have calloused on the ends of my fingers. Well, that's what happens to us spiritually if we give in to sin. If I continue to sin over and over and over again, my heart grows callous. I become deaf to the word of God. I become deaf to his voice. I don't hear his conviction anymore. It's so tragic when you see this happen in people's lives. I see it especially in marriages that are falling apart. See, the husband and wife just do the most stupid, hurtful things to one another over and over again. Not because they're stupid people, but because they've given into sin year after year after year. They've grown calloused, and now they can't tell what's good. They can't tell what's true. They can't tell what's right because they've hardened themselves. When that happens, God moves on to step number two. If conviction isn't enough to get our attention, he moves on to step number two. He warns us. Now, Conviction is where God identifies our sin. Warning is where God identifies the consequences. He tells us ahead of time exactly what's going to happen to us if we continue in our sin. That's what God does in the rest of chapter 30. Look with me starting in verse 3. God says, therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. God wants Judah to know if you turn to Egypt, it's not going to work out well for you. In fact, you are going to be embarrassed on the international stage. You are going to be internationally ashamed if you turn to Egypt. You're going to, be, you're going to look like fools if you do this, guys. Now look down at verse 12. His warning continues. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel... "'Since you have rejected this word "'and you've put your trust in oppression and guile "'and have relied on them, "'therefore this iniquity will be to you "'like a breach about to fall, "'a bulge in a high wall "'whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, "'whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, "'so ruthlessly shattered "'that a a shard will not be found among its pieces "'to take fire from a hearth "'or to scoop water from a cistern. "'For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, "'in repentance and rest you will be saved.' And quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. What God is doing right here is he is laying out in crystal clarity before it happens. Judah, here's what you're going to get if you continue to sin. Number one, this wall collapsing, your destruction is going to come upon you suddenly. Like a wall, it begins to crack. Slowly over time, that crack grows, everything looks fine until all of a sudden one day, the wall comes crumbling down. That's what's going to happen to your nation. In fact, you're going to be so destroyed, so shattered that if you were a pot, there wouldn't be a piece big enough to scoop up any water with. Utterly destroyed. destroyed. And and you're going to flee from your enemies and they're going to pursue you. They're going to hunt you down. You're not going to be faster than them. They're going to catch up to you. They're going to decimate you to the point that you're like a flag on a mountaintop. What's a flag on a mountaintop? It's alone. It is utterly alone. There's nothing around it. It's a pole on the top of a mountain. That's going to be your nation. There's going to be one of you for every thousand left. They're going to wipe you out if you continue in sin. God is crystal clear in his warning to the nation of Judah. He wants them to understand exactly what will happen if they sin. And that's the same thing God does for us. He warns us of the consequences of our sin. If we won't listen to his conviction, then he speaks to us words of warning. And he does it first and foremost through his word. The Bible is full from cover to cover of clear warning. God lays out exactly what our sin will bring. That's actually what most of the book of Isaiah is about. If you're Hanging with me so far in the book of Isaiah and you're feeling like, man, Blake, this is a really depressing book. Yes, it is, because most of it is a warning. Most of it is meant to show you that sin is going to destroy your life. That's the purpose of most of Isaiah. It's the purpose of most of biblical prophecy to warn you of the consequences of sin. God is so clear in his word. He warns us what our sin will bring. He tells us what's going to happen. I think actually the most powerful warnings in scripture aren't the, aren't the warnings of prophecy. They're the stories of scripture. You read about guys like Saul and David and Solomon. You see the price they paid for their sin and it's an incredibly powerful warning to you. If you give in to sin like they did, you will experience the same pain that they experienced. God warns us through his word. God also warns us through the experiences of life. God gives us the opportunity to see what happens to other people when they sin. I carry in my wallet a a small little list with a bunch of names of men whom I know well who chose to cheat on their wives. And I watch them cheat on their wives and then experience utter devastation. Utter destruction. Some of these guys lost their jobs and their careers. Some of these guys lost their families. All of them experienced incredible pain and inflicted incredible pain on their wives and on their their kids. Totally devastated their lives. Why do I keep that list? Because it's my warning. It reminds me if I follow them in sin, I will follow them in pain. If I do what they did, I will be on that list and I never want to be there. God doesn't ever want you to be surprised by the consequences of your sin. That's not what God does. He doesn't want you to feel guilty. He doesn't want you to be surprised. He tells you ahead of time exactly what your sin will result in. He warns you so that you know sin is not worth it. You should turn away now. Now, if we don't turn, if we persist in sin after step number one and step number two, then God moves on to step number three. And step number three is different than the other two. Steps one and two, conviction and warning. In those steps, God was giving us information to motivate us to turn from sin. And step number three, God's done giving us information. He begins to give us pain. That's step number three. God disciplines us. Discipline, a simple definition for you guys. Discipline is temporary pain, whether physical or emotional, relational or spiritual. that's designed by God to bring Repentance. Discipline is temporary pain designed by God to bring repentance. Discipline is is a painful thing, but it is a good thing. It's very important to understand the, the reasoning behind it. God brings pain in your life for a specific purpose, to bring you to repentance. God talks about that in Deuteronomy 8. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Just as I will have to discipline my children, so God disciplines us. This, this verse here, the Hebrew behind it is the word yasar for discipline. It means correction that is intended to educate. God's discipline, yes, it's painful, but it's always meant for our good. It's meant to teach us and train us and educate us. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. For they, our our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Discipline is painful, but it's always meant for our good. It's meant for our restoration and blessing. It's very significant, very important to understand. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is, is not retribution. Discipline is not wrath. That's an important distinction to understand. Discipline is what God gives to a believer who is sinning. Wrath is what God gives to an unbeliever who is sinning. Discipline is is redemptive and beneficial. Wrath is punitive and destructive. Discipline is temporary. Wrath is eternal. Discipline and wrath are not the same thing. Discipline is pain that's meant for a good purpose. It's meant to be beneficial in your life. But saying that, even though discipline is meant for good, I want you to understand something. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Here's Isaiah's point. Yes, discipline is good for you, but God never prefers it. What does God want to do for his children? Same thing that all parents want to do for their children. He wants to bless you. God wants to show mercy and compassion to you. He wants to shower your life with blessings. He doesn't want to discipline you. He does not enjoy discipline. Why does he discipline you? Not because he enjoys pain and suffering, but because he loves you. He loves you so much that he cannot allow you to continue to enjoy sin. He knows better than you do how destructive sin is to you and to everyone around you. So out of incredible love, out of incredible grace, even though he doesn't want to do it, God brings discipline. That's so important for us to understand. When we begin to experience the pain of discipline in our lives, we need to understand God's not doing this to me because he doesn't like me. God's not doing this to me because he enjoys seeing me in pain. No, God hates this. God does not want discipline for me. God wants blessing. But he loves me far too much to bless me in the midst of my sin. And so even though he hates discipline, he begins to bring it into our lives. And when he does that, when God disciplines us, there's three different ways he does it. Three different types of discipline he brings into our lives. Number one, he withholds his protection. That's God's passive discipline he simply withdraws his hands protecting us away so that we begin to experience the natural consequences of sin we've said it many times here sin is always destructive sin always leads to pain that's just a law of God's universe and what happens if we continue in our sin is that God pulls away his hands of protection and he begins to allow us to experience the natural pain of sin so if you if you continue if you persist in let's say spending more money than you make well, God withdraws his hand and you experience the natural consequences, which are financial crisis. You go in debt, you lose your home, your finances collapse around you. That's just the natural consequence of sin. Or if you persist in speaking in a mean way to your spouse, God pulls his hands back. What's the natural consequences of that? Relational crisis, marriage crisis. You're showing up to a counselor's office. You may lose your marriage because you persisted in sin. Or you persist in, in sleeping around and drinking too much and eating too much. God withdraws his hand of protection. What happens? Health crisis. You're in the hospital with a heart attack or a disease. Why? Because that's the natural consequences of sin. That's where discipline starts. God withdraws his hand of protection and allows us to experience the pain that sin always brings. Now, I, I want you to notice something from chapter 30, particularly from verse 13. Verse 13. This analogy of a wall that has a crack slowly grow up it until all of a sudden it bulges and falls. That's how sin works. The consequences of sin usually do not come in an orderly fashion into your life. I've seen so many believers who, who give into sin a little bit at a time, day after day, and they think they're getting away with it. There's very few consequences. Maybe no one knows about their sin. They're keeping it private. Looks like they're getting away with it. And all the time, that little crack is building up the side of the wall until all of a sudden they slip up. Maybe an email gets out and is discovered or or an account sheet doesn't line up on their reimbursements at work or a cop shows up at just the wrong time and all of a sudden the crack opens up and the wall falls down around them and their life collapses. That's how sin often works. Consequences come all of a sudden and their life is devastated. If you persist in sin, God will withdraw his hand of protection and allow you to begin to experience the intense pain and destruction that sin always brings. That's his passive discipline, but God is also active in discipline. Type of discipline number two, he sends distress. That's what verse 19 says. Actually, verse 20 is talking about, although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression. That's an odd phrase. I think you could translate it better. The Lord will give you distress to eat and suffering to drink. That's the second type of discipline God brings. He actively brings suffering and pain into your life. That's what was happening to Judah. Assyria coming down and invading Judah, that wasn't natural consequences. All the way back in chapter eight, God told Ahaz, if you continue in sin, I will whistle for Assyria and I will call them down to invade your country. Guess what? It was happening. It was happening during Hezekiah's lifetime. God was actively disciplining his people. He was bringing pain and suffering into their lives. That's what God will do for us. If we persist in sin, God will begin to bring pain into our lives. A couple examples we see in the New Testament, James chapter 5, we learn of believers who have been persisting in sin and God gives them as a consequence a critical illness. They are in the pain of some kind of serious physical illness. Now, let's be clear, most physical illnesses are not the result of sin, but God reserves the right. If you persist in sin, he has the right to inflict you with a critical illness, to bring pain and suffering in your life. Why? To lead you to repentance, to lead you away from sin. Another example, Acts chapter five. A guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They persist in the sin of lying to God's people and lying to God. God steps in and disciplines them. How? What's God do? Kills them. On the spot, they're dead. That's the ultimate form of discipline. God simply kills them. Now they're believers, they go to heaven after they die, but God loves them too much to leave them in their sin. They persist in their sin. So finally God says, you're done causing pain in your life and in the life of others. I'm taking your life right now. God brings pain into our lives, not because he enjoys pain, not because he loves suffering, but because he loves us, because he loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to turn us away from sin. Even if it means inflicting pain upon us, he'll do whatever it takes to turn us from sin and lead us to righteousness, because he's the most loving father there is. It's the second form of discipline God employs. He sends distress, pain, and suffering into our life. Third form of discipline, he breaks our fellowship. He severs our fellowship with him and with his people. God begins by severing the sinner's fellowship with God. We see that later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now it's important to understand, God is still their father. They still have a relationship with God, they'll spend eternity with God, but their sins have resulted in a separation, a chasm between them and God. It's like they're estranged from their Heavenly Father. They're not enjoying fellowship, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no communication from God. He has severed his fellowship with them, because God is holy, he cannot share fellowship with those who are walking in sin. So God severs fellowship between himself and between the sinner, and then God severs fellowship between the sinner and between God's people. That's what we call church discipline. It's a serious thing. It's where a local body of believers, a church, bands together and decides to break fellowship with a sinning believer. A believer who is 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 non repentant, who is continuing to walk in sin, we simply disassociate from them. We no longer have fellowship with them, we no longer spend time with them. Jesus outlined that process in Matthew eighteen. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, your relationship with him is broken. You're not going to lunch with him. You're not spending time with him. You're not welcoming him in your home. That relationship is severed. Church discipline is serious stuff. It's it's something we employ very, very rarely. It's only been a few times in the history of our church. It's really serious. But when it does happen, the most common response I hear is, man, that is harsh. How can that be loving to sever fellowship with that person? Well, I want you to understand, church discipline is the most loving thing we can do. Church discipline is incredibly loving. First of all, it's loving to the church. It's loving to the church as a whole. In the midst of challenging the church of Corinth to discipline a sinning believer, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Why do we exercise church discipline? Because sin is like leaven that spreads through a whole lump of dough. It's like cancer. If you leave it unchecked, it will spread throughout the entire body. God calls us to to withdraw, to disassociate from the person walking in sin because he doesn't want sin to infect all of us. If you leave sin unchecked, it will grow, it will spread. So the most loving thing we can do for the church is to remove the sinning member. Paul says it in a similar way, 1 Timothy 5. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. We do church discipline because we all need to fear sin. Church discipline is serious. When it happens, it wakes you up. You're afraid. You don't want to be that person. It builds holy fear within you. Church discipline is loving to the church as a whole, but it's also loving to the sinner. Church discipline is the most loving thing we can do to the unrepentant believer. Why? Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. What Paul is saying is the reason we discipline people is not just so that they'll be sorrowful, but that they'll be sorrowful that leads them to repentance. When when this person is removed from fellowship with us, it's a painful thing. This is where all his friends are. Now he's got no one to go to lunch with. He's not able to spend time with us. He's not able to enjoy our fellowship. He's not able to do life with us. It's incredibly isolating. He feels alone. He feels abandoned. It's painful. It's difficult. Why does God want that? Because that pain can lead him to wake up and recognize the folly of sin. That sorrow leads to repentance. That's what church discipline is about. God severs the fellowship of the sinner and his people. Because God wants that sinning believer to understand the pain and destruction of sin. So that he'll be turned. So let's look back at the list. When we sin, God begins with conviction, He moves on to warning, and if we still don't heed Him, He moves into discipline. And in discipline, he brings pain into our lives by withholding his hand of protection. We begin to experience the devastation of sin in our lives. And he actively brings pain and suffering upon us so that we will wake up and understand what sin is. And he severs our fellowship both with him and with his people. This is really serious stuff. I look at this list and I say, I really don't want to ever experience those things. Those are really painful things. This is horrible stuff. Good news. You don't have to experience God's discipline. There is a way to escape God's discipline. How do you do that? How do you avoid God's discipline? By repentance. You repent of your sin. Look at verse 15 again. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. And quietness and trust is your strength. In repentance, you will be saved. To repent, that word means to turn, to change one's direction. Now, turn from what to what? Well, you got to figure that out from context. When the word is directed to a believer who is sinning, it means to turn from sin towards obedience. Turn away from whatever sin God is convicting you of, whether it's a behavior or, or speech or a bad attitude, whatever it is, turn away from it and begin to obey. Do whatever it takes to begin to obey God. That's what God is talking about when he says repentance. If you want to escape God's discipline, then you must repent. You must acknowledge your sin and turn from it and begin to obey God. The moment that you do that, God withdraws his hand of discipline and returns his hand of blessing and protection. Look with me. We'll see that play out. Verse 19. Here, here's the ideal path of repentance verse 19 o people in zion inhabitant in jerusalem you will weep no longer he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry when he hears it he will answer you this is a cry of repentance he's saying jerusalem if you will just cry out to god if you will just put your trust in him if you will repent before him here will be the result verse 20 Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. In other words, God will step in and immediately restore his relationship with you. He will restore fellowship. You will hear God. You will see God. You will be close to God. Continues, verse 21, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold, you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone. God is saying, If you repent, then I will lead you in maturity. I will lead you in righteousness. I'll lead you away from idolatry. I'll lead you away from sin. I will grow you in maturity. And then, this is the best part, verse 23. Then he will give you rain for the seed, which you will sow in the ground, and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plentiful. On that day, your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also, the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Now that passage is full of a lot of imagery that you probably don't understand. It doesn't mean a ton to us. What Isaiah is doing is is painting a beautiful picture, as beautiful a picture as he can imagine of the blessings of God. He's saying, if you will simply repent Judah, Hezekiah, if you will repent, God will pour forth his mercy and compassion on you. He will pour forth his blessing onto your life. That's what he longs to do. All of his mercy and compassion, it's like it's held back by a dam right now. That dam is your sin. If you will simply repent, that dam will burst and his mercy and compassion will flood into your life and it will renew, it will heal, it will bless, it will restore. Now, there will still be consequences to face. The countryside has been wiped out. The economy has been wiped out. But God will begin to restore. He will begin to bless. He will bring you joy and peace and deliverance and blessing if you will simply repent. I love the language of verse 18. It says that God is waiting on high to show compassion and mercy. That's what God is doing right now. He's waiting on high to bless you. What's he waiting for? you, just to repent. If you will simply acknowledge your sin and turn from it, then God will unleash mercy and compassion into your life. That's the good news. You can escape God's discipline. You can experience his blessings if you will simply repent. And that's the message that some of you need to hear this morning. There's some of you here who you have been walking in sin for a long time now. There's some area of sin in your life, something you know is wrong, but you've just been living with it. You've been excusing it, dismissing it, rationalizing it. Maybe you've been doing it so long you feel like there's no way I could stop doing that. It's just who I am. You're living with that sin. You're doing it time and time again. What Isaiah wants you to understand is that you are either under God's discipline or you're about to be under God's discipline. And when you're under God's discipline, it's going to bring pain. It's not a pleasant experience to be under the discipline of God. This sin is not going to work out for you. This sin is going to lead you to a life of destruction and pain and suffering. Why? Because your heavenly father loves you so much. He cannot leave you to enjoy your sin for long. He loves you too much for that. So he's going to bring discipline and it's going to be painful. You don't want that. You don't want a life of pain and suffering and discipline. That's what you're going to have as long as you're in sin. So repent. Repent. This morning, right now, you can repent. Just turn to God and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. God, this sin I've been giving into, it is wrong. I'm done rationalizing it. I'm done excusing it. I'm done justifying it. Doesn't matter if anyone else ever knows what I'm doing. It is wrong. I acknowledge that and Lord, I turn from it. Father, I need your strength. This is a sin that has a lot of ownership of me, but I commit to do whatever it takes to walk away from this sin and walk towards you. That's repentance. If that's you this morning, you need to turn to God right now and repent. That's the only way you can experience his mercy and compassion and blessing. Now, there's others of you who are not in the midst of sin, but someone in your family or a friend of yours is. You know, a believer who has chosen to walk away from God, they're walking headfirst after sin. What do you need to do for them? You need to pray. You need to pray that God would get hold of them. You need to pray that he would cut away the calluses around their heart. Even if that's a painful process, which it will probably be, you need to pray that he will speak to them and open their eyes and convict them to understand their sin. And this is, this is the hard part. You know, if, if this is a person you really love, a person you really care about, the last thing you want for them is pain. And yet the best thing for them is probably pain. That's just a reality. If they are walking after sin, if they've done it for a long time, then the most gracious thing God could give them is pain and suffering. Pain and suffering designed to lead them to repentance. So pray, God, in your grace and your love, do whatever it takes to lead them away from sin. Whatever it takes, God. Whatever it takes. There may be some of you here this morning who you're not under the discipline of God because you're not yet a child of God. Remember, discipline, that's reserved for God's children. Those who are not God's children, what do they get? Not discipline, but, but wrath. God's punishment of sin. If you're here this morning and and you are trying to earn your way to God, you're trying to earn your way out of God's wrath and into God's love, into a relationship with God. If you're trying to earn that by coming to church, by doing good deeds, by giving money to the poor, by praying a lot, you need to understand um, there is no human being who can ever earn their way out of the wrath of God. You cannot earn God's forgiveness. You cannot earn his love. You cannot earn his acceptance. You cannot earn heaven. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to merit God's forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to get out of his wrath. That's why God offers it as a free gift. He offers his love. He offers his forgiveness, not as something to earn, but as something to freely receive. He wants you to stop trying to earn it and simply receive it as a free gift. That's why God sent his son, Jesus who lived a perfect life, a sin-free life, and then willingly took our sins upon himself and died in our place. That's what the cross is about. It's the place where Jesus took our wrath in our place. And right now you can be forever forgiven. You can be freed from the wrath of God for all eternity if you will simply receive that free gift by faith. If you will simply believe that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead, then right now you are forever forgiven you become a child of God forever. You can never lose that. You will have heaven to enjoy with your, with your father. You will have eternal life if you will simply believe. Receive the love and forgiveness of God as a free gift. You can't earn it. God wants to give it to you. All you have to do is accept it in faith. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. Probably all of us are in a little bit different places. I want us to go before the Lord in prayer now because he knows exactly where each of us is this morning. He knows exactly where you are in this process. Let's turn to him and pray that he would speak to us clearly, that he would convict us, that he would open our eyes to our sin and lead us to repentance and obedience. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are our father. We don't deserve that, Lord. We don't deserve to know you as our father. We are sinful. We are rebellious. We deserve your wrath and punishment. Thank you so much for sending your own son, Jesus Christ who purchased forgiveness for us at the cost of his own life, who died for us, who took our wrath upon himself and died in our place. I pray Lord for any person in this room who has not yet received that free gift of forgiveness, that you would open their eyes to understand the good news that Jesus has died for them, that they don't need to earn your love, that it's a free gift that they simply need to believe that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead. Please open their eyes to that truth right now, Lord, lead them to believe. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, I pray, Lord, for your conviction. I pray that you would speak to us clearly and compellingly this morning. I pray that your Spirit would open our eyes to see our sin, to see that it is wretched, that it is horrible, to understand how you see it, Lord. Please help us to understand how devastating and destructive it is. Please, Lord, help us to to desire to turn from it, Lord. For those in here this morning who have been giving in to sin for a long time, I pray that this morning would be the morning when they wake up and see the devastation that sin creates. I pray that you would open their hearts to desire to turn from their sin, to desire to repent. Lead us, Lord, to obey you. Lead us to walk with you, for you are worthy of our obedience, Lord. You are worthy of all the glory we can muster. You are a great God and our great Father. We thank you so much for the gift of your Son, Jesus. We pray that our lives would honor and glorify Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.